Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Hunt for Nazi Spies in Ireland. At the outbreak of the Second World War, the Irish Free State Government adopted a policy of neutrality. Now while this ensured Ireland was not invaded, numerous Nazi agents were smuggled into Ireland to gather intelligence and develop contacts with the IRA, who shared their hostility towards Britain. Therefore, during the war, Irish military intelligence had to launch a relentless pursuit of these spies. Often cooperating with British counter-espionage, this was a highly successful operation as they captured all known German agents who landed on the island. Now, in this episode, I interview Mark McMenamin, the author of two books, Ireland's Secret War and Codebreaker. Mark has researched and written extensively on Irish efforts to counter Nazi operatives in Ireland during the war. So in this show, he explains this fascinating story, how the IRA were entangled with the Nazis, the often comical attempts by the Nazis to infiltrate Ireland during the war, and the forgotten story of Irish code breakers as well. But I began the interview by asking Mark to explain who exactly Irish military intelligence were. They're often referred to as G2, but their history is not that well known. As Mark now explains, it emerged from the intelligence division of the IRA in the War of Independence. It essentially forms out of the nucleus of intelligence section of the IRA from Michael Collins. It goes through various iterations. You know, it really comes into its fore, though, then when we're looking at the Second World War, because up until that point, you know, you, you don't really, I suppose, it's, it, it's, it's when the common enemy comes along. That is Nazi Germany and kind of the looming clouds of fascism, as I would say, in Europe. Up until that point, pretty much like a lot of the focus with the people in the army is kind of, uh, kind of looking at Britain. You have to remember, it's 20 odd years after the War of Independence, the Civil War. 
coming up to when you, when you come up to the period of the emergency. So the focus isn't really there, you know, on on what we call external threats to the state, to the nascent Irish state. And the person that really kind of sees the woods from the trees, really, on this is Dan Bryan. And in the mid-30s, he senses what's going on in Europe, what's going on on the continent. He sees kind of what's happening with Mussolini, what's happening with, with Hitler, you know, uh, the rise of fascism. And he senses almost immediately this could be a threat to Ireland, okay, from a security point of view, which is very prescient of him. You know, he's really ahead of his time here. And he's kind of quite alone in the army and in the government on this. He's really quite ahead of his time. So the crucial thing about Brian as well is, uh, as a character, and if we look at kind of intelligence uh, as a whole up until the outbreak of the war, is that um, he was he was an, a, an excellent intelligence chief in that he kept in with people that he might necessarily have been friends with people that were on the opposite side with them in the in the civil war. So he had a good working relationship with you know people that were anti-treaty Republicans. Everyone kind of respected Dan. And because of that, he was able to kind of put together, see the bigger picture that we have this looming threat of, uh, of fascism. We have disgruntled elements in the IRA. We have the rump of the IRA like that's still there that didn't side with De Valera, didn't embrace some of the Gael and, and kind of free statism and whatever else. And he senses that there could be a link here, right? And there could be a problem coming down the line. And Republicans probably could be used as a kind of a fifth column by, the, by Nazi Germany or by other foreign powers. And, and he senses the danger in that. And therein lies the problem, you know. And, and, and thus that became the, the, the nucleus of what, what he was trying to achieve. He pens this memorandum, Fundamental Factors Affecting Irish Defence Policy, which, which, which was way ahead of its time. He outlined kind of all the strategic ways in which Ireland could be vulnerable to an attack, could be vulnerable to spies, etc. And, and like it was quite alarming. And, and, and this eventually circulates in government, around various government levels. It circulates around um, members of the army. And it kind, of, it kind of awakens them just about in the nick of time. So while Irish military intelligence had come to recognise the threat posed by the Nazis by the late 1930s, this was matched, however, by a growing interest in Ireland by German intelligence. This often took the form of seemingly harmless cultural exchanges, but it appears they were seeking to cultivate relations with the IRA. Yeah, it's very interesting because, I mean, it's not as if they suddenly just kind of developed this interest out of the clear blue sky. Like there's, there's, there's links with Germany that go back years and years, and there's always been kind of a German presence in Ireland. If you go back to the Ireland, the Krusha scheme, German thing, you know, there was German labour involved in that, uh, German um, engineering expertise. So the cultural links were always there. And in the, you know, in the 20s and in the 30s, especially when you come into the 1930s, the early 1930s, you know, just as kind of Hitler comes to power, but before the outbreak of the war, that that, that decade of the 1930s, you have cultural exchanges between Ireland and Germany. You have Germans who are traveling to, Germans who are traveling over here, they're doing courses in, you know, various, mainly in the arts, actually, in, in, in Trinity College, but various different disciplines. Some of them come over to study folklore. I mean, there's a guy, Malthusen, he managed to make it as far as Donegal, where I'm from, the Donegal Gale Talks, you know. But what was happening is when they were going to Irish-speaking areas and areas in the west of Ireland, some of these German students became acquainted with Republicans and with the IRA. Now, whether that was by accident or design, it, the jury is out on that, although, you know, there are extensive MI5 files on some of these German students that came over and they would have been members of political organizations you know so it's highly likely that maybe you know it was by design you know some of them 
some of the some of them always denied that you know uh, some of the German students that came over but one way or another there's this, there's connections there are made very tenuous you know tenuous connections but relationships are built up and, and one of those is is, is um is um you know Tom Barry who becomes acquainted with uh, a German some of the German students that come over here but that develops you know the IRA at this particular time is a kind of a tumultuous organization it doesn't kind of really know its role it's kind of its place you know there's there's chief of staff changes several times in the IRA at this particular period it all kind of comes to a fore of the period of, of 30s, eventually when, when, when Sean Russell becomes the chief of staff of the IRA. It's, it's then when it's probably decided by the Abware that there is there's an opportunity for Ireland to be used or to be exploited. Now, from what I've read and what I've looked at in various documents, their, their knowledge, I suppose, of what Ireland is really like on the ground is probably not the best in terms of the intelligence gathering that they had. You know, they seem to have this perception that Ireland... Uh, that the IRA was kind of this rising army, like that was going to just you know, sweep the country, like and help them as a fifth column. But really, it was kind of a, it's kind of a ragtag bag of misfits, like a lot of. But a lot of them kind of were at odds with each other. They were largely in disarray, and that doesn't really change until Sean Russell comes in, and, and you're looking at the S plan when 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 they start uh, targeting various cities in London and all that. It's but it's then that they really see that there's an opportunity here to make some serious linkage here because. Everyone knows the war is coming, you know, it's kind of inevitable at this stage towards the end of the 1930s. It's it's only then when Russell comes in and Russell comes to the fore, he he, he reorganises the, the IRA into somewhat more a formidable force. He puts shape on the organisation and it's there then that they begin to really see them as an asset. Our conversation moved through the 1930s and Mark explained how the Nazis viewed Ireland by the outbreak of the Second World War and outlined some of their plans in relation to the island. Well, you see, the thing is, there's various iterations of various different plans. And, you know, some of them have commonalities, some of them are different. You know, one of the plans was this plan Kathleen, which was to use the IRA to kind of create political instability in Northern Ireland, to give the, the, to give the Germans the pretense then to invade, to kind of defend the, the, the native Irish, you know, and, and that was their end then. You know, he had Operation Shamrock then, which was to invade uh, the South, you know, uh, coming in kind of at Wexford there. So, I mean, well, ultimately what they want is the, it, this is all happening, in, with, uh, you know, in the context of the Battle of Britain. You have to look at this because, you know, like you're just after Dunkirk. You are looking at the fact that the, the British have received an almighty bloody nose. France is, you know, France is gone. You know, so they're, they're standing alone and they're extremely vulnerable. So if they can open up a second front from Ireland and on the other side, it's a pincer style movement, you know, when they're going to squeeze them from two sides. Now, you know, how realistic that is that they're going to be able to invade Ireland with air support, I suppose, from the RAF, they would have ultimately come in and defended Ireland. It's hard to know how successful it would have been. I would imagine probably not very successful, but that's what they're looking at ultimately. Now that all changes then, of course, you know, with uh, the Blitz in London and how I suppose how the RAF ultimately ultimately defend London, and then Operation Barbarossa, Hitler kind of changes his whole tactics anyway. Then you know he opens the war on two fronts for himself. Never mind trying to open up on two fronts for the the British. So there's a whole change in scenario there. But that would have ultimately been the, that 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 was ultimately where they were coming from. During this period, multiple German agents landed in Ireland. Before we look at some of these individuals, Mark explains how a lot of their work was observational rather than actually carrying out acts of military sabotage. The most important thing in all, of all in terms of war, in terms of intelligence gathering, is the weather. 
I think most people, and myself included, up until I, I, I kind of studied this in more detail, you know, you would think when you hear intelligence and spying and all that, they must be stealing top secret documents. But usually it's to get in and see what the weather is like, you know, in terms of planning planning attacks and invasions. And in recent years, you know, it's just shown how important that has been in Ireland in terms of the D-Day landings. There was some great work done by filmmaker Jerry Gregg a number of years ago, a documentary, uh, Stormfront from Mayo, you know, the Black Sod episode out there and all that so it just shows how crucial that information is but also the land border as well with Northern Ireland there with the, with the UK I mean it's relevant today you know with, with, with you see it with Brexit it was the same thing back then you know they're close to Northern Ireland they can get in they can see troop movements in the north everything that's going on in, in Derry for example so there are various different reasons why they wanted to be in Ireland and have a presence in Ireland. And if the invasion, if, if a possible or fated invasion of Ireland wasn't going to happen or never happen, they were still very dangerous to have on Irish side in terms of the intelligence that they could gather. Because if the Irish decided to share nothing with the British, that's, you know, Dan Bryan decided to have a very good security relationship with MI5, with the uh, MI5's Irish section under Guy Liddell. It was a total black spot for the uh, for the, for British intelligence to, to know what was going on right under their nose. While we will look at some of the individual agents who reached Ireland later in the episode, Mark first explained what has become one of the more well-known chapters in this secret war. That was the visit of the IRA chief of staff, Sean Russell, to Nazi Germany in 1940. However, he would die on board a German U-boat as he returned to Ireland. But Mark now explains what exactly Russell was doing in Germany and his somewhat complex motivations. Russell travels to Germany and he, he's trained by the Abwehr, you know, in, sub, in subversive techniques and explosives and everything. And the idea is to send them back to Ireland, basically, in terms of aiding this kind of plan to, to, to invade Ireland, to get the Germans a context with which to invade and to uphold Irish neutrality. Because you have to remember as well, at this particular period, obviously there's the threat of German invasion, but Irish sovereignty as well, kind of under in trouble as well in terms of maybe perhaps a preemptive invasion from one of the Allied sides, you know, to try and prevent, you know, so you're kind of in trouble both ways. You're treading a very precarious line here. And there's an opportunity there, you know, for Russell and them to, to exploit that. So, I, you know, I personally, I find it strange with Russell. He's, he, he's, he, he's, he's someone that kind of divides opinion with so many different people and so many different levels. I kind of find it hard to kind of criticise him in a lot of ways because, I mean, he seems to be kind of carrying on the Republican struggle that, you know, up and not that long beforehand. A lot of the people that are trying to stop him were at the same thing, you know. So he's a divisive figure. Like, even since my book came out, I've seen some people, you know, some reviews, you know, kind of criticising Russell, some defending him, you know. But the reality is he's there to be exploited by the Nazis. And I wonder, and I've wondered this, and there's no proof. I mean, there's absolutely no proof that Russell was anti-Semitic or anything like that. I don't think he was anything like that at all. But I wonder, was he extremely naive who he was dealing with when he was dealing with the Nazis? And you have to weigh up the price then that you would pay for Irish freedom. I mentioned in the book that on Eichmann's list there of European Jews, Jewish people in Ireland are enumerated on that list. Like, so at what cost would this have been worth it? So these are the things that kind of come to the fore when you look at Russell. There's kind of um, a lot of questions there. It's kind of lazy. I don't know if it's lazy, but just to say that he was an outright kind of anti-Semitic, kind of a, a Nazi supporter. I think I think there's a lot more to it than that. So. I wouldn't take an opinion on either side on him, you know, but I think he's a very interesting character. and uh, Sadly, someone that probably isn't studied as much as he should be. I was keen to hear about some of the individual agents. Mark now explains who some of the actual people who were captured during the war were. 
I mean, they sent over a number of different contacts. There was ultimately, uh, I think, seven or eight. I mean, one of the guys that was here was a guy called Werner Oldland, who was actually a, what, a sleeper agent. So he was actually here before the war, before he eventually awoke. But most of them, it was, it was ridiculous kind of stuff. It was Keystone Cops kind of stuff. And, you know, it begs the question, like, did they take Ireland seriously at all? Or, like, were they so stretched during the war that they were sending just complete idiots? Like, because, it's like, some of the guys, it was ridiculous. There was um, one spy, a guy called Walter Simon, arrives in Dinkle, and he ends up in the pub. Like, he, he ends up with a whiskey, and he, he comes into the pub. It was uh, Nelligan's pub. I was in it myself. I had to go in for a spy pint, <laughs> you know? But uh, he comes in, and he slams the table with his fist. And I was speaking to some of the, you know, locals who heard the stories of this. And he slams his fist on the table and he says, the poverty of Ireland will disappear when Hitler comes to power in, the, in this country. And, I mean, you can imagine now, like in Dingle on a Friday night, like in, 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 in 1930, some, this, this, this lad, Germanic voice, comes in and starts doing this. So it wasn't too long before this fella, like the special branch around him and he was lifted. So this was the kind of thing that you were dealing with. Another, another, another German spy, a guy called Wilhelm Freyth, bought himself a kind of a Cadillac, a real flashy car, used to drive around Dublin and pick it up picking up girls like so you know it wasn't too long before and you have to remember Dublin's a lot smaller place back then as well it's not it wouldn't be hard for you to stick out like many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As Mark continued, he began to conjure up a picture of more comical escapades than anything else. Some of them were given pretty good instructions but how well they carried those out now is a different story you know they got easily distracted they kind of seemed to be on a party when they're over here a lot of them you know some of them were to gather economic espionage for example there was one spy Wilhelm Preetz and, and their mission parameters would have varied from person to person Wilhelm Preetz for example he, he actually went out and he spied on Val Donald and he spied on some of the military installations the quality of that intelligence, it's kind of arguable if it was any good, you know. Weather reports, weather information, they came with transmitters and they were trying to kind of transmit this information back to Berlin. Then, But G2 were trying to monitor the airwaves, you know, to see what was coming in in terms of radio traffic. And they had, they had several people who were kind of installed in various houses in Dublin trying to read the radio traffic to see was there illicit communications being broadcast over the airways. They didn't tend to venture into Northern Ireland, uh, although towards the end of the war, some of them did. But there was a good working relationship then between, I suppose, the RUC special branch and then Dan Bryan and everybody else. The guy in charge of the RUC special branch um, has the best name I think uh, you could possibly have if you were to be involved in catching spies. His name was Roger Moore. So I thought that was very funny when I came across that. That actually is his name. So uh, Roger Moore had a good re- relationship with, with, with Dan Bryan. 
you know, with the various guys in the Garda Special Branch, and they kept pretty good tabs on all these guys. While most of these German agents were arrested in the first 24 hours after they landed in Ireland, one in particular managed to evade capture for over a year. Mark now explains who Hermann Gortz was and how he managed to evade the Irish authorities for so long. They were all lifted straight away within 24 hours, except for Hermann Gortz. Hermann Gortz was on the loose for nearly a year. Now, there's, there's no real concrete, nobody really knows why that was. And there's a number of different schools of thought on that guy. They say that he just got lucky every time. Every time, like, the special branch and military intelligence closed in on him, he managed to just kind of escape. Like, but then the other thing that they, uh, they, 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 the, other, the other theory that's out there is that, uh, you know, Gertz uh, was let loose for a little while just to see who he was talking to. And, you know, most of the people in the IRA that he was having any dealings with ended up actually being interned. So, you know, the IRA were extremely annoyed with him because of that so it's not it's, it's not entirely concrete i suppose how herman gertz managed to stay on the loose for so long but he was the only one the rest were caught within 24 hours or so and mainly out of their stupidity it's amazing actually when you look at herman gertz how he wasn't arrested like there's stories of him i mean there's stories of him walking through Newbridge, you know after he gets parachuted in in, in, in full nazi regalia like and asking for directions like allegedly he went into a guard station in wicklow and asked did they know where the IRA was. Like, so this is, this is these are the stories that you hear. I mean, how true they are, I don't know. How he wasn't lifted, like, apparently the guards in Colafuca give him the right, give him directions, <laughs> like, and send him on his way, like, into town. So maybe they thought he was mad. I don't know. But um, you would wonder how he did come to the attention of people a lot sooner. They did make one attempt to try and arrest him in Temple Oak, and he managed to escape, but he was caught then. Almost a year later, he, he's caught in Clontarf. And it's actually funny when he's caught in on tariff, it's almost by accident. They were actually trying to raid another house and they raided the wrong house and they found him in it. Like, so it's, it's a strange one, you know, and there's no real, no real hard and fast answer why. But I would speculate if, if it was my own opinion, I, I, I would say they probably let him loose for a little while to see who he was talking to because, like, you know, ultimately, I don't think he was, he wasn't a huge threat. You know, he was a threat in terms of the threat he could pose, like, but he wasn't, he wasn't the most, like, he wasn't the brightest, the, the brightest button. And, he, and, you know, he seemed like, from what I've read, and you look at, like, because he wrote a complete account of everything he did here, like, he spent half his time with the womanizing, like, and going out in Dublin. Like, people, uh, you know, from what I gather from reading, like, you know, uh, out in the nightlife in Dublin, people were like, that's the spy. I mean, I came across, um, like, honestly, and I, I came across, like, a debate in, in, in the doll. I actually quoted the book because it's brilliant. I can't remember the name of the TD. But it was kind of a bit of sparring between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And the Fine Gael guy says, you know, oh, he knows as much as the parachutist. So even they were kind of joking about it in the doll, if it was a parachutist, the guy that had come down on the loose. So it's, it's just a strange one. The fact he managed to avoid capture for an entire year left me wondering who was helping him. A German living in Ireland during the Second World War would naturally draw down attention. So he clearly must have had local support in Ireland. Yeah, like he was, he was mainly put up by there were there was actually two sisters in Glenageary, the, the Farrell sisters, and they actually looked after him and he stayed with them, and they were kind of a support network. And then there was other people, various contacts in the Republican movement. I wouldn't say they were, they were, he, he's meant to have met up with one of the generals in the, in the army, General Hugo McNeil. Yeah, so he, you know, he, he's meant to have had a meeting with him. They said that 
two TDs might have met with him as well. This is kind of the stuff that comes out. There's nothing quite, quite concrete on it. He he's he's able to be on the loose, and he kind of goes he, he goes around on the charity of others, you know. And he, he he's living off the back of that. That there are people who are willing to put him up and look after him. I mean, one of the places he stays is he stays he stays with he stays with this old gone, you know, uh, Mad Gone's daughter. They put him up in, in the house, and you know, there's some there's some kind of evidence that he might have had an affair then with this old gone, and she put him up. I think Mark. Uh, Mark Hull discusses that in his book, Irish Secrets. Excellent book on this period, you know, that people should check out, as well as my own. Mark's done excellent research in all of this. So, yeah, you know, like, he, he lives largely on the charity of others and people putting him up. And he has those connections within the kind of republic within the Republican movement uh, that are that that, that I won't I, I, I'm like, they're not sympathetic to the German cause by any means, but they they sense the opportunity here that it might be uh, useful to help get back to six counties. So he he, he knocks around within that milieu very much so. While many of the German agents were captured through incompetence, Irish military intelligence had also developed a code-breaking team. Now, these people have been almost entirely forgotten by history, but Mark explains more about them now. There wasn't any expertise in the army at the time to break German codes. And I mentioned earlier that there was, they were watching the radio waves, you know, to see were there any spies, people communicating. And they actually did hear illicit radio traffic and it came from, surprise, surprise, the German embassy, the German legation. So they were, they were, they were using a transmitter there to communicate back to Berlin. But sure, they had no expertise in the Irish army to break codes, like not at all. So Dr. Richard Hayes was a well-known intellectual and he was the director of the National Library. They secondment military intelligence and they gave him a code-breaking team made up of some civil servants, some actual uh, members of Vanguard the Shia And actually, very interestingly enough as well, young Kevin Boland, uh, the arms trial Kevin Boland, ends up with this code-breaking team as well. The, the whole operation is so top secret that the young Kevin Boland isn't even allowed to tell his father Gerald Boland, he's the Minister for Justice at the time. So, it's you know, it's incredible stuff. But Hayes has great success at figuring out how this code works. He doesn't eventually break it. But when the German spies come into Ireland, then they're carrying uh, their instructions and their means of communication back to Berlin. It's all encrypted and it's all encoded through using ciphers. Hayes is very successful in breaking all of those codes. The, the code that Hermann Goertz is carrying, which later becomes known as the Goertz cipher, is an extremely sophisticated cipher. And Hayes breaks that. The guys in Bletchley Park actually come over to Dublin to see how to break this, you know, because they're having some difficulty with it themselves. Finally, as our interview drew to a close, I asked Mark about the overall impact of Irish military intelligence during the Second World War. I, I think they played a, a hugely significant role. And I think like people like Dan Bryan, Dr. Richard Hayes, there are many others as well. But take those two, for example. I think they played a, a, a hugely instrumental role in, in Irish history. And I think they've been sadly kind of left out of the historical record. I don't think people realise how pivotal a character Dan Bryan is in the history of this country in terms of keeping Ireland neutral and keeping uh, Ireland out of the worst kind of excesses of the war. He kind of tra- he, he walks a very kind of a thin line. It's a kind of a, you know, it's, a, it's like a tightrope because he, he's sharing security information with the British because he knows it's the best thing to do, even though he has come from that. He, he's come from the revolution himself. You know, and there's, there's, there's consternation within the army. They're disagreeing with colleagues about this, people that don't agree with what he's doing at all. But ultimately, he was able to kind of see above and beyond that, which was incredible for a man who was, you know, he, he was a spotter on Baggett Street Bridge during Bloody Sunday. Like, you know, he was very much after revolution. He knows that he has to do things this way because it's the right thing to do for the country. And to have that vision and to have that foresight and to think so far ahead, it's really incredible. I mean, 
Internationally, when you're looking at intelligence operations, it's very unusual for any intelligence organization to kind of achieve nearly all of their outcomes. And, 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 uh, and, and you know, G2, they did do that. They apprehended all the German spies that came here that we know of. There's a possibility some might have got slipped through the, you know, the news that, that Brian and his colleagues didn't pick up on. But anyone that came here that was a serious threat to, 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 to Irish sovereignty, to, to the Allied war effort, they were all apprehended. And in terms of an intelligence operation that's run like with very little resources by a small crowd of guys, it's incredibly, incredibly successful. I think he should be remembered for that. I think he's an incredible figure in Irish history. And I think only for, I think, I think De Valera's, you know, De Valera makes his famous speech of Ireland standing alone at the end of the war, you know, which I can understand why it was done. You know, he's trying to kind of, was trying to justify our position in the new post-war world, kind of assert our independence, but it really doesn't do service to really what happened on the ground. That you know, you have you you have this incredible feat in terms of intelligence of what he did. You have Dr. Richard Hayes who broke these German codes. He broke one German code that they came over from Bletchley Park to see how to break it. I think it's a tragedy that they're not better that they're not better known. And you know. I think the big impetus for me in writing the two books and writing Codebreaker and in writing Ireland's Secret War was that it might just generate a bit of a conversation about these two guys and about what they achieved and might make people, you know, look towards maybe that they might be, I won't say commemorated, but that they may be more part of, of the narrative of the Second World War. You look at schools and the way we teach it, like it's largely, it, it, it's, it's largely neutral, you know, it's the glimmer men and dinner rationing and things like that. There, there's a lot more going on. And I think a famous a famous saying I heard once was that Ireland did, did everything by sending the troops to, to help the Allies, you know, I think that would be fair to say. So I think, I think if more people talk about Dan Bryan and talk about Dr. Richard Hayes as a result of my two books, I'd be very happy. That's all I'd want out of them. Brian and, and Hayes are both actually honoured in their own ways, which I always thought was brilliant. They brought Richard Hayes over to London. They kind of took him out for the weekend. And they say that he got a medal. haven't been able to prove that. It was a family member said that he got a he got a medal, like kind of for helping out and all that off Churchill. But I've never been able to find the medal or find out the, uh, behind it. But Dan Bryan himself was brought up then to Derry, actually in civilian clothing to to witness the uh, U-boat surrender in Derry. So the two of them were honoured in their own way. I'd like to thank Mark for his time. His books, Ireland's Secret War and Codebreaker, are available from Gill Press. I have links to both of them in the show notes below. I would highly recommend checking them out. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.